A poem is a small machine made of words. William Carlos Williams. Welcome to the Small Machine Talks, exploring the poetry scene of Central Canada and beyond with Amanda Earl and A.M. Kozak. Welcome to the Small Machine Talks. This is the fifth season opener. I'm Amanda Earl, and I am. I am with- Oh, I'm A.M. Kozak, and we're going to have a few probably snafus like that where we're not sure who's <laughs> supposed to be talking because of uh, because we're on Zoom and because my internet is not great and I can't be on video. Well, I can, just then it often will I'll lose connection. So I can't. they can't see when I'm about to jump in either. So I am A.M. Kozak, and we're also here with a guest. Yes. Our guest Hello. is... <laughs> We're here with Justin Million. Hi, Justin. Hi, Amanda. How are you? Hi, hi Aaron. How are you? <laughs> yeah, so we, this is actually our fifth season opener. So that means that we're, we're starting our fifth year doing the podcast. So you get to be our, our first guest on the on the new season. So there you go. That's, that's I'm honored. Of, yeah, that's it. So what we're going to do is just we're just going to ask a few questions and then uh, Justin's going to give us a few answers, and that's, as usual, there's nothing unusual about, we haven't started doing pyrotechnics and stuff with the podcast and things like that. So I can't remember, who's doing the bio? Is it me or you, Erin? I don't remember. <laughs> uh, uh, me. Okay. So shall I start? All right. All right. Justin Million is the curator of the Show and Tell Poetry series and is a co-founder and the current poetry editor of Bird Buried Press. Million has been published in countless journals, chapbooks, ephemera, and online magazines. He lives in his hometown of Peterborough, Ontario with Elisa Rubicha. I hope I pronounced that somewhat correctly. Nutmeg in their 12 typewriters. Oh my goodness, 12. His book, Ejecta, the Uncollected Keyboards Poems, was recently published by Apartment 9 Press. Uh, So we've already welcomed Justin, so I will welcome him again and say, wow, you have 12 typewriters. Yeah, that, it's been, that is that is correct, but they are all in various states of disrepair. <laughs> it's funny how we don't have a question about the typewriters. That's interesting to me that we we don't we don't do that. But so if you feel like jumping in at any point in talking about various typewriters, just to do it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe there's maybe some you wrote you use for certain poems and some you use for others or something like that. So yes. my first question is is a general question. And I, I have to say, because of the exclamation mark on keyboards, I always have to say keyboards. I just can't help myself. So if I do it, just, you know. So tell us about keyboards, the live poetry show. What was the process like? So keyboards, um, keyboards started as, uh, I, and I hope I, I'm, I'm a kind of meander if you want to get to town kind of guy. I like to kind <laughs> of walk around my answers. So uh, hopefully we can allow for that. But um, uh yeah, so keyboard started as um, a project that um, I was sitting at the Garnet, uh, where I did most of the keyboards performances over the two and a half years of the sh- of the show, or shows. And I was at the bar one night, and I was talking to then uh, bartender, uh, now Curve Lake uh, counselor, city counselor, um, Sean Conway, and he told me, you know, I, you know, let's do something weird, bring something different to the garnet stage and i didn't you know i didn't know what that would be i did want to do something more performative my show and tell poetry series 
uh, had already started, but it was basically um, a reinvention of the, well, very slight reinvention of the more traditional poetry reading. So I wanted to do something different. So uh, I went home that night and uh, as my lovely partner pointed out that we had a bunch of kind of analog and digital keyboards, uh, I don't know, pieces on our on our dining room table. There was a um, there was a typewriter, there was a laptop, there was a portable uh, keyboard for a uh, personal computer. There was a actual keyboard like piano. And I don't know why that came to me, but, uh, and I think, well, it actually, I think it maybe came to Alicia first through her noticing this, um, keyboards. Because <laughs> I had intended, I had intended the show to be more akin to, um, if you're aware of B.A. Johnston, uh, the performer, musician, um, his shows are kind of legend, especially around here. And I wanted the show to be um, uh, music, poetry, um, just weird. Uh, I, I believe for the first two or three keyboard, the official title of the event was Keyboards WTF. <laughs> uh, like, you know, like, what is this show? So the first show, the first two shows, I think, I had a piano with me. I had a laptop, I had a typewriter, um, so I was doing a lot of different things, but then the show over the, in a very short period of time, the show just became the act of writing on a typewriter on a stage. So what I would do is I would get up on stage with, with my typewriter, set it up, and I would set up a stool uh, in front of the stage. So I would type a poem based on either what I'm overhearing in the audience or just whatever occurs to me in the moment. I would finish the poem without editing with, and I would start the poem without notes. I would finish it without editing. I would ding a small bell that the garnet outfitted me with. And when I ding the bell, I would read the poem on the mic. And then I would set the poem on a stool directly in front of uh, where I was writing and people who were in the audience could take it away for, you know, a, a quarter, a loony, a toonie, uh, you know, whatever. So, um, yeah, I guess that's the bare bones of what the events were. Before, before so, we go on to the next question, I just wanted to start, you said you, you brought a piano. Do you mean like a, like a key, like you didn't bring like a full upright piano or you did? You, no, no, no. I brought <laughs> just a, my, my, again, my lovely partner, Alicia Rubishaw bought, bought me a, uh, keyboard piano, okay. like, you know, like, uh, it's weird calling it a keyboard now because then it gets, conflated with a typewriter or you know, because the event was called keyboards but yes a keyboards piano uh uh and yeah i brought that in and did some i don't know how to play piano <laughs> okay so uh i would just kind of riff on that while you know i don't know yeah riffing i would riff on the keyboard while riffing uh verbally Anyone record those or? <laughs> uh, no, thankfully, no. <laughs> Although I did read, I remember I was doing a lot of really, what I thought was really interesting synthesizer work while I, while I um, improved a uh, Halloween story. I, I wish that had been recorded, but <laughs> unfortunately, right. it was. So along the, along the same lines of, you know, you playing some, some uh, keyboard without knowing how to play keyboard, was there any resistance from the staff or the patrons as you're up there, you know, doing this kind of weird thing on a stage in the venue that probably doesn't have, or I mean, probably no venue has stuff like that, but was there people that were like 
annoyed or upset or like gave you shit during this uh, these these times? Um, there there were a couple instances. I mean, again, Aaron, this is over like like two and a half years, right? So like that's that'll happen. I think, yeah, like I think there were I think there were thirty keyboards performances total, and I think twenty eight of them were at the Garnet. Um, so yeah, like we had some bad, there were some bad nights. There were, um, bad nights in terms of my performance, bad nights in terms of, um, you know, some people in the audience that I didn't know ruining the performance. Mm -hmm. Um, but for the most part, I, um, in the early days of keyboards, I was trying, I think I was trying to write finished work like that we would all try to write for like a trade book or something. Yeah. Um, I was trying to do that live, which I realized um, probably isn't the most exciting thing to watch and probably isn't the most exciting thing to hear if you are kind of a uh, bar regular more than a reader. Right. Um, so for the longest time, it was kind of endearing myself on purpose to this kind of uh, public reading and creation experience. Um, but for the most part, it was no, it was gentle heckling. Um, and again, I would use I would use some poems to endear myself to the folks in the audience, um, because I think, you know, especially now more than ever, people want to think their opinions um, are, you know, uh, more than valid are are, uh, you know, all gold. Uh, everyone wants to think what they have to say, you know, hot takes and all that. Um, people want to think they all have a hot take. So I think people were just, and this gets into, I think, things we'll probably talk about later, but people were surprised to be included in the work. Mm. Um, and I think that kind of endeared um, endeared me to them, if that's a sentence. <laughs> um, and, and then I think, yeah, I just, I just um, you know, by attrition, I just kind of gained their approval. And more to the point, when as keyboards really started to move a bit later on, when it started to become more of a destination, people would actually show up on purpose. <laughs> um, <laughs> then it became, you know, more of a thing where people would actually, uh, you know, try to to speak as loudly as possible in the hopes that I might put whatever they had said into a poem. That's funny. <laughs> Yeah, it was, it's, yeah, it's a weird experience, but it also like the louder people would speak and like obviously looking over at me after they'd say something, um, you know, I would just omit that on purpose because that was, <laughs> that's not the point, right? <laughs> that's funny. So uh, in, uh, so Cameron Anstey, who is the publisher of Apartment 9 Press and who published yeah. the book, he writes a, a wonderful introduction to the book. It was, uh, it's great. Yeah. And so it's called 21 Notes on Keyboards, and it's very detailed as well. In note 14, he quotes you, I wanted the typewriter to be an opportunity to grow as a poet, to stretch my poetics, and to interrogate the act of writing as I knew it through relying on a different medium to produce my finished work. What are some of the ways in which using the typewriter stretched your poetics? Ooh. That is a that is a long answer, and I you know someday when I come to Ottawa, you and I, Aaron and I, will sit down and we'll have a two three hour conversation just about that alone. If you guys want to do that, but um, there's a few things that I could say right off the hop that you know for one, the one thing I like to always say about typewriter writing that it does is is uh, it forces you to reckon with what you really mean to say with a lot more urgency than what you would normally feel when sitting at a digital machine. So like at a, at a, 
uh, a laptop or something. Uh, the backspace button looms large on a keyboard uh, on a laptop, right? Yeah. If you come, if you write something you don't like, you backspace it, and it literally, I mean, for all intents and purposes, ceases to exist. Um, with a typewriter, the mistakes are, or I guess, yeah, if you if you think you've made a mistake, there are a couple options, but the physicality of the page remains no matter what you decide. So even if you decide to, uh, let's say, scrap a page, uh, as I like to say, that page still needs to be reckoned with. You need to physically remove it from the machine. You need to physically crumple it up into a ball. You need to physically throw that ball into a recycling bin. And then on Mondays, which is when we take our recycling out here, you need to look at all your mistakes that you've made um, because they still exist in the world. Um, I think that prompts maybe, again, I'm not sure what the actual, uh, um, you know, what this actually might lead to in terms of like, would this have the same effect for every writer? That I don't know. But for me, it, it really caused me to try to put down something at all times during a show that was, um, uh, that was just, it, again, trying to, trying to finish a poem, not trying to lean on the benefit of the doubt of the audience. Um, because I did get the benefit of the doubt from the audience because they know I'm just improving poems. Um, so what I, I, I called this editing urgency um, because, I mean, it is a show, keyboards. Right. You, know, well, you know, I am on a stage. Um, <laughs> I'm not getting paid to be there, but, you know, I'm getting paid in poems to be there and sometimes in beers to be there. Um, so I wanted to make sure that what I was writing um, was still, I mean, entertaining. But as a poet, I also wanted to make sure that what I was doing meant something. Um, there's also the physicality of the typewriter, the, you know, the fact that it's, you can, like, if I'm using an electric, I can hear it whirring, you know, I can hear it kind of wheezing and whirring and the bell dinging when I hit a line break, um, you know, that kind of thing, uh, which again, I think just makes you kind of more attuned to the act of writing itself. Um, you're aware of how everything that you're doing is through this machine. Whereas I don't think we think about that when we're writing on a laptop. Um, also the last thing I guess I'll say, cause I'm already going on as I tend to do, uh, I've already apologized for that in advance, I think. Um, <laughs> but is, uh, you know, there, there was always that fun moment where you'd have to rewind the ribbon during the show. <laughs> So, you know, oh, whoops, oh, my, my ink is going dry. What's happening? And then I would, I would pull up the machine and I would realize, oh, my ribbon's out. So then I'd have to personally rewind it uh, during the show. That's not something you see very often, I think, I feel, during a, a live writing show. Um, so, so I guess all that being said, it's, it's kind of a pulling back the curtain on the writing process. Cameron talks about that in his introduction about how it was all being done on stage. Like, I don't know of any other... I'm not, you know, I'm not to toot my own horn here. That's not what I'm trying to do. But I don't know of any other show that was really pulling back the curtain on how writing actually happens in real time. Yeah. And you mentioned that, you know, the, the act of using the typewriter for you, you know, it, it kind of changes the process and has your thinking about it because you don't have the backspace the same way and other things like that. Are those sort of like lessons that you you carry forward in your writing practice currently when you're not using a typewriter? Like, do you find you're more attuned to those to other aspects of writing now if you're writing at, say, a laptop or on, on paper? 
just because of the experience of writing with a typewriter for, for so long? I think I do, but I think the best way to kind of get at that understanding, because for me, I think it makes kind of more of, a, of an intuitive understanding that's hard to express. Mm. But th- I think the easiest way I would express it is, um, is that it's, the typewriter was like an influence that I have kind of worked through. Actually, Cameron okay. and I have, have had this discussion somewhat recently where I had published a small chat book actually just a couple weeks ago. and I'd sent it out to some friends um, and and I think I needed to just get the work out as opposed to sending it to somebody like Amanda or, you know, um, somebody who I, I trust and like their work in small press. Instead of doing that, um, I thought, well, I'll just send it out. I need to get this out and clear my plate in terms of influences um, that I was working through over the last couple of years, like Matthew Zapruder and Matthew Rohrer, who are two, uh, American poets, or Kayla Zaga, who's a great uh, young uh, Canadian poet, or um, <laughs> <laughs> or Futurism.com, the website, uh, which has been one of my longtime influences. Um, so I think I was kind of working, I needed to get rid of that book so that I could not only clean my slate um, in terms of projects, but I could also clear my slate in terms of influences. So I would say that even though I still use the typewriter as a as a means of creating work, um, obviously I don't use it at home like I would in a keyboards event. It's different. But again, I think the, the typewriter was an influence that I needed to work through. And whatever lessons that I've learned from that, I can I can somewhat express, and I hope I have in my small essay and I think Cameron did a much better job than I did doesn't he do a better job uh, than all of us at everything though yeah that's it uh, <laughs> um, but yeah I think it was just an influence that I needed to work through and I think I have and now I still uh, thankfully have it as a tool that I can use going forward um, yeah all right were there any other parts uh, any other thoughts on the introduction that you had about uh, on Cameron's introduction yeah Oh, um, or mine or whatever. No, no, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, Cameron's, uh, Cameron's introduction was, I, I kind of knowing Cameron, I've known Cameron for a long time yeah, and yeah. we've been very good friends and collaborators for a long time. So I knew the angle that he would be coming at it, uh, mm-hmm. from, I knew his work on Nelson Ball yeah. and Bill Hawkins. Uh, for instance, so I knew he'd be coming from a more kind of archival academic background. Um, so I I knew that my essay that is in the back of, well, essay, if you want to call it that, that's in the back of the book, would be a nice uh, kind of companion piece for his because mine's a bit more freewheeling as is my conversational style. But also, um, yeah, very much very much uh very much so not as academic as cameron's is uh, but i think by having both kind of styles it fleshes out more of what the thing was so yeah i'm i i'm floored by cameron's i was floored by cameron's introduction and by the book itself well, the um book, yeah. as a book object of course but i mean you all know Cameron and, and you know the work that Cameron does. We expect nothing less. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, it is a, it is an absolutely beautiful, beautiful book. Um, so 
if you listener are interested in books just for the if you don't like everything else you hear you just like books for their you know physical beauty it's it's worth it even even from just that perspective um speaking yeah. of the the your essay at the end and i know you're going to get into some of the things we're talking about today you're going to have mentioned in the essay or cameron will have talked about or um sure. be alluded to but um you know for the for all the folks who haven't read haven't read your book yet can you talk about and similar to a question i asked earlier any fights that you got in uh the garnet based on what you had uh, written or said um any kind of altercations like that um i can only really think of one one very negative instance which is actually which is actually captured in the book um I'd, uh, I, I, I do have my book here, but it, it would take me a second and we're on air, so I won't try to look. Um, but is that uh, a Know Your Neighbor poem on page 33? Poem number 123? 33. 33. Nazi tattoo. Oh, no. So that was my actual, no, that's a different story. That was my actual neighbor. Yeah. Uh, he, yeah, he's a well-known neo-Nazi in the city. He was my neighbor for a while, but I didn't find out he was a neo-Nazi until I moved out. Oh wow! Um, he, he's an ongoing concern in Peterborough, so I, I wouldn't even want to give him too much uh, time on the radio. Good His point. name is Kevin Gaudreau, though, and he's a neo-Nazi. Well, there you go. I will say that. Uh, <laughs> you can cut that out if you want to. Um, but no, the only instance I could think of is a poem. It was from Christmas. So I used to do a, what I'd call a keyboards family Christmas. Yeah. And we would have various performers through the city um, come in and play music or read a christmas story or tell us a christmas memory or whatever and i was doing the show and and a gentleman by the name of tim fowler uh came in and uh he's uh, i do know he has i mean i would presume he has some sort of mental health issues um so of course you know the garnet being an inclusive space we're all very accommodating to that but he walked up to me on the microphone and the first thing he said to me was while he's kind of looming over my typewriter was, you know, nobody gives a shit about what you're doing here. Right. And I said, okay, <laughs> you know, I just kept doing what I was doing. And then he proceeded to lay on the ground and, and rock in the fetal position screaming, I'm baby Jesus, uh, which I was still okay with. I was like, okay, well this makes the show even weirder. Let's just keep, let's just keep right. letting that happen. And then he, uh you know just kept proceeding he got up and then he kept proceeding to just you know annoy me to the point where when he went back to his seat i let the bartender know like i think we might have an issue here and so uh and it turns out another person there had an issue with this gentleman so he was asked to leave and there was a very public uh altercation and then he left oh no <laughs> and then he apparently accosted one of the audience one of my audience members right outside the venue and was actually rescued by uh, a street associated gentleman named Andre, who actually just passed, unfortunately, oh. argue the, the group, one of the best street people in the entire fucking world. Or sorry, what a, in oh, the world. Um, that. Mm. Okay. Too late now. <laughs> um, but yeah, he just, he just passed, which is very sad news, but um, he saved uh, my friend that night from what could have been, a very awkward encounter so so what would have been a lovely christmas keyboards performance was ruined 
which I believe is the last line of the poem is um, fuck you, Tim Fowler, I think. <laughs> um, so, if, if, but the next day, I'll, I'll just finish the story for posterity. The next day, Tim Fowler was arrested, as far as I heard, for uh, getting in an altercation with police and pulling a gun out of a policeman's holster. Although I just saw him rollerblading down the street a couple of weeks ago, so. So it's a happy ending then, good. <laughs> yeah, maybe that'll come back to bite me though, who knows? Who knows, who knows? I seem to remember um, uh, when uh, Inwards used to have uh, readings at the avant-garde bar that at one point uh, Jesus did show up and uh, interrupt the... Uh... Okay, good. We just. <laughs> We've just been told we get extra time from uh, by the Zoom. I just got a message from Zoom. Thank you, Zoom. But yeah, so oh, I, I, think you, I seem to remember that uh, there was someone who came uh, during the reading and uh, into the into the bar and took the mic and uh, decided to read. And he said he was Jesus. I don't know if you were oh, there. Oh wow! <laughs> so well, shows up a lot at these events, I guess. <laughs> well, and to be honest, Andrew, that may have happened, but uh, as I'm sure you were aware, I was. Uh, I wasn't necessarily in my right mind at all of those shows. <laughs> well, a lot of so, us weren't necessarily either, so. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, so, all right, oh, I guess it's me now. So uh, this is while, while uh, you can't see this at home, but uh, anyone who's listening, but uh, Justin is outside taking a smoke break, but he's still on Zoom, thanks to uh, the miracles of modern technology. So yes, the, I apologize for any ambient noise here. I, don't, I can't hear anything so far, so but we can see your, a bit of your house, so that's always fun. Your red brick right. in the background, that's fun. Yes. So the book opens with a quote from Matthew Zapruder's Why Poetry, which concludes, and poems rem remind of something we almost always take for granted, the miraculous, tenuous ability of language to connect us to each other and the world around us. Cameron quotes an interview with Ben Labitzer, where you talk about uh, how some of the people in the bar might have no experience with poetry and some are chuffed to be included, while for others it's more of a challenge to enter their space and do your own thing. You say it might amount to no more than a peace offering between you and the audience to show them you are here for them. In what ways are you there for them through your poems? How do they connect to others, your poems, and to the world? Um, yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I would say, my, I'm there in the sense that I'm there for them in the sense that I am literally there for their entertainment. Um, and this is something, again, as I kind of touched on earlier, that I had to realize after a while that, yes, I was indeed there to do a show. Um, so it, there for them in the sense to entertain them, ideally there to turn them on to poetry in a way that maybe they uh, had not foreseen um, before. Because poetry isn't, or uh, Peterborough isn't necessarily a poetry town. Uh, spoken word is is really big here, and they do the Peterborough Poetry Slam Collective here do amazing work. Um, but in terms of page poetry, it's not exactly the big scene here. Um, so yeah, I um, I'm there for them in terms of just being there physically, um, but also to again, I think there is really something. And whether it's vanity, that's okay with me, or whatever it is, um, that people, um, I could see this kind of washing over on their face, this kind of, um, you know, they're, they are chuffed to be included. Uh, they're they're um, shocked that anything that they had to say 
um, would actually be could could be included in a poem, which I find to be a profound thing. Like to me, to extrapolate that means that a lot of people don't think that they have anything that they could say in a poem. Mm. Um, and I think keyboards kind of lays that illusion bare in the sense that, like, I'm just up here just riffing. I don't bring notes. I'm just up here trying to write something. Um, just like if you were at home, you know, it, you know, speaking of one of these audience members now, if they were at home and attempted to do the same, they could do it. Right. Um, so again, the kind of pulling back of the curtain um, and saying, you could do this too if you wanted to. I mean, again, all that it took for me to do it, and I'm not sure if this is going to come up later, but um, all it took me to do it was to go to a bar, to sit at a bar and get to know some people and then just basically ask it permission to do it. Um, you know, I know things are maybe a bit different in Ottawa with venues and whatnot, but you know, if anybody's looking to just do something strange, um, <laughs> and to put in the work to actually make it a show, approach a bar, approach a coffee shop. You'll be surprised at what they'll let you do, especially, um, if, you know, if most of these places survive what's happening now, yeah. they're going to want as much help as, as you can give them. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and I know we've already talked about um, altercations, but what about anything like, d does anyone ever engage in a conversation with you after you read? And uh, do you find subjects uh, of the poems open of conversation more than others, some subjects? Not really, no. Like, we wouldn't, we wouldn't so much talk about the work, admittedly, Amanda, just because, um, I mean, the work just runs the gamut you know, in terms of theme and, and tone and whatever the whole night. Um, and, and, and again, this, this isn't a room, uh, of poets, you know, like most of the, most of the folks in the room had probably never cracked a book of poetry in their lives. <laughs> so yeah, I don't think, uh, no, there were, there weren't too many discussions about the work. Um, but there were discussions about, you know, Oh my God, you said that thing. That I said about, you know, whatever. Again, people just thinking that their observations about life or something they have to say um, just isn't interesting when it can be included so easily in a poem. They're they're shocked. Right, right. Well, it's funny actually because when you think about it, a lot of times um, writers do that kind kind of in secret, right? Like we sit in a cafe or a bar and we listen to conversation and we might include something of that in in the work but we don't necessarily no one actually realizes that it's happening when it happens usually so if this is absolutely. an acknowledgement of that process too of, yeah absolutely don't, don't um, <laughs> um yeah absolutely again just then and i think that's something that that changed in my kind of personal philosophy around that time and again, why Matthew Zapruder's book, Why Poetry, is very important to me um, and to Cameron, I think, um, because that book is basically all about, you know, maybe we were taught um, how to dissect poems incorrectly. Mm. Um, you know, every poem has a has a quote unquote secret that needs to be discovered. Yeah. Um, and when you when you do that, when you make anything um, that kind of exclusive then you're you're basically just you're basically saying if you don't get it then you probably won't get any poetry right yeah, yeah. Um, so again i think that's why keyboards ended up turning more into a how can i please the audience while still getting across 
um, some type of meaning. Uh, because for me, meaning is is at the helm of every everything I'm trying to do in my writing. Um, but I have to admit, after a while, keyboards kind of became a bit of a quasi-poetic uh, stand-up routine almost. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, once, sometimes once you're on stage, you end up to entertain. Sometimes it's uh, the uh, no, sort of standard route is to try it. Well, even when you're nervous, like I find sometimes if I'm nervous and I'm in front of an audience, funny things happen. But I think sometimes then they're just laughing at rather than with me. So it's different. But uh, yeah, <laughs> humor is uh, is a kind of a thing that we all do when we're also a little bit nervous as well. So well, and I think yeah, that and I think we'll probably talk about this at some point. But that's where things like the uh, Peterborough slogans poems came from and and some right. of the more kind of obvious funnier bits came from is is trying to okay especially at the beginning of the night I'm not going to start with uh you know some deep poem about uh you know what I really feel about death or something right you know, <laughs> that's not going to go over well but when you have to when you when you're doing it the last Sunday of the month which is something I didn't include at the, at the beginning it was always the last Sunday of the month at right. 8 p.m. Right. And I, I didn't miss one. I think I missed one month um, during the two and a half years or maybe two. And, you know, sometimes we'd be coming back from a visit to Ottawa or something and we'd land at Sunday at 530 and I'd have to get my typewriter and, and fly over to the Garnet and I'd be maybe already hung over from Ottawa or whatever. And you still have to do the show. So um you know some ideas you know they they can't all be winners that's for sure but if that's the case then let's try to write something funny right off the top to get the room on your side so that they're more uh willing to kind of hear what you're going to do as the night goes on but the audience would all also change every 45 minutes or every hour and a half like it's a bar mm -hmm. right so you know you you might have a you might have a full bar in terms of you know, 10 people there, but maybe only maybe seven or eight of them when you start were there just to have drinks. Yeah. And didn't want to be part of a show. So how do you bring those people onto your side, you know, so that you're not just, I don't know, screaming into the ether. Mm -hmm. You said something interesting about, um, you know, sometimes it felt like you're more of a, you know, stand-up comic. And I'm, I'm wondering if for people who are not, exposed to poetry or or any sort of like genre of art that is seen as inaccessible or or tough to crack if these sort of blending of genres with things that are a bit more you know seen as a bit more um accessible or more familiar like stand-up comedy like like you know even even acting or theater if like that that sort of presentation or those elements of those presentations kind of mixed in with poetry makes it an easier entry point for people. So there's like some sort of element of familiarity, familiarity where you're, you're there, you're performing, performing, you're like telling jokes, you're interacting with the audience. Some of that feels kind of familiar, but it's also poetry and it can kind of make it more uh, demystifies it a little bit for people. And maybe it just makes it, you know, they, they, they come away thinking of poetry a little bit different than maybe when they, they first went there. Absolutely, Aaron. Yeah, I like that because and I do like I, I do like the um, the connection to stand up, uh, like aside from what he when I was saying that, you know, became a bit more of that. But like, I think I think the best stand up and I'm a big fan of stand up, uh, stand up comedy. And I think yeah. the best stand up comedy 
um, kind of tries to include you uh, not only in the jokes, but in the act of stand-up itself. Like I know a lot of the best stand-up that I've seen, um, you know, they'll try to kind of, they'll tell a joke that's a bit offside and then the audience will laugh and they'll tell a joke that's a bit more offside and the audience will laugh until the point where they tell a joke that's so reprehensible or what should be so reprehensible. But because the stand-up comedian has brought you along with them on this journey toward uh, reprehensible and more reprehensible jokes that when he gets to a joke about, you know, dead babies or something like that, you laugh. Right. And then the comic will point out like, oh, you're laughing at that? That's right. funny to you? You know, so just to get them to, you know, and then I think that opens the audience up to like, oh, what was the process there? He's right, I or she's right, or they're right. Like, I laughed at this joke about, you know, I don't know, uh, whatever. And then I laughed at this worst joke. And now I'm laughing at a joke about abortion. Yeah. But I would never joke about abortion. That's not funny. Well, yeah. it's like, well, how did they get you there? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, right. So I would try to do kind of the same thing with keyboards, especially in uh, the Peterborough Slogans poems, or especially with... Um, uh, you know, uh, things going on at, at the municipal level, like with city council or, or our mayor or some type of other public figure. And, and as you can probably tell, if you can, or as you may have already known, or could assume, like if you're telling a joke about a politician at a dive bar, it's going to go over pretty well. Yeah. yeah right. So, you know, you start there and then you start with, um, you know, uh, yeah, Peter Rose slogans, but then I would always, I would always preface Peter Rose slogans, especially if I had an audience full of people I didn't necessarily know, I'd start off by saying I was born and raised here. Right. Yeah. That's a different thing. Like I, yeah. Yeah. Right. That's a, I love this city. Yeah. 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 And I love the city then means, you know, I love the city, but that also gives me license to criticize it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I know it better than maybe a lot of you in the audience do. Um, or I know it just as well as you do, and I have the same feelings as you about it. Isn't that interesting? And then, that, again, that gives us a common ground. So, yeah, I do like the connect in there, Aaron, with, with stand-up. Again, bringing, bringing them to your, not bringing them to your level yeah. and not bringing yourself down, but just finding a connector in between. Yeah, so that's a great, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yes, and similar to like we're t we're kind of getting to the meat here of uh, you know the the performative elements and how that ties into the the artistic elements. Uh, and in, in Cameron's introduction, again going back to the the lovely introduction, he talks about other live performances of writing and publishing, and he says that these all foreground physical labor in the physical body and insists that each should form public components of literary artistic production. So, how important do you feel the body and materiality are to poetry? Um, and is that shifting like now these days with like, you know, more moving to digital platforms? And this is a great example. Like we're all, you know, uh, going through a pandemic where we're interacting physically much less. So do you feel like there's something inherent about the body materiality is important to poetry? And if so, is there is there a change in that right now? Ugh. Body and materiality is in like the physical body. Yeah. I mean, for me, it, for me, it would be more, uh, no, for me, no, not so much. For me, for me, it was all kind of fed to the machine in terms of the, you know, the mm -hmm. physical body. It, it would be, uh, 
you know, pounding on the keys. Um, every everything in terms of physicality was probably rendered through the machine. Hmm. Um, but you can you can see where frustration occurs. I guess that's kind of an interesting thing. I hadn't really thought about it until now. Um, but in terms of yeah, the body, in terms of the physicality of the page, um, you can see where frustration mounts. Like you can see where I've X things out. You can see where I've scribbled things out with pen because maybe the X's just aren't enough for me to erase that thing from my memory. Hmm. Um, so yeah, you can you can see, and you can also see in the in the kind of uh, um, in the way I'm typing. Uh, and and how little or not I'm caring about how perfect the page looks like I'm not gonna lie I'm gonna say that you know there were a lot of moments where a lot of these poems that have made it into the book were written at uh, you know 2 30 in the morning or 2 in the morning um, I, I believe there's one poem in there that's just like I'm done or something uh, which again I'm, I'm not great at remembering my own work but I, I believe there is a I believe there is a poem in there that says like I'm done and I meant, I didn't, I didn't mean like I'm done, you know, as a rule, I, I meant like I'm done for tonight. Right. Because that's another <laughs> thing that's kind of lost in the translation of the book, talking about materiality, yeah. is, is that like those moments, unless I were to go and painstakingly describe them in my essay, which I didn't want to do, um, it leaves those kind of open to probably mostly negative interpretation um you know like wow this poem is like basically nothing <laughs> and it's like well sure but that may have been my 24th poem that night and i was you know six hours into a performance six hours. and i'm drunk and i just want it to be over <laughs> and so then and again talk about the stand-up then i would write that and i would ding the bell and i would get up and i would probably preface it with some joke like okay so i shouldn't have drank that fourth shot of tequila that Malcolm bought me or, you know, whatever. And then, you know, you use that bad poem as it were, or that less kind of, uh, yeah, that, that less important poem or whatever you want to say, you use that as again, as another means of kind of bringing them into, into your process. Like this is crap. Yeah. I know, but it's the end of my night. I've been up here too long, etc. So, and I love those poems in the book because people ask me about them all the time. Like, what's up with this poem? Like, this is basically a non-poem. It's like an anti-poem. <laughs> and it's like, well, sure. Again, that's all, that's all part of the process. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that poem, maybe I didn't write it at the end of the, of the long night. Maybe I wrote it early, but maybe I had to get it out to write something better after it. That's it. Seems right. like, like the you know, the keyboards experience is very much like there's a lot of context, right? There's a lot of stuff happening in the bar. A lot of things happen that day. And when it's transposed to the page for someone like me to read it, you know, there's a lot of things that are going to be, you know, not present. And then we as the reader kind of make it up. Have you thought about like, how do you feel about, you know, these very context dependent public pieces now being transposed to like this beautiful physical object that is detached from that context that, you know, that people like me are reading? Have you thought about like, what that how that makes it you know different from me reading it versus someone hearing it in the bar i'm sure you have thought of it i well i i have thought about it aaron and and to be honest with you that's maybe the one comment i'm getting more than others huh. um is is how to engage with the book so the the one comment i'm getting more than any other probably is 
I, I picked up your book to read it the other day. I didn't read the whole thing. I think of it as the type of thing where I just set it down and pick it back up again. Sure, like of course, it's a, like a console, but I, I wouldn't say that's the, the best or only way to read it. I mean, I don't think there is a best way to read this book, um, which is why I think it's an interesting book, um, aside from what I've written. Like what I've written is, is a part of the book. It's not the book. Right. Um, like you picked up on, like there's all kinds of, of contexts. Um, there's all kinds of like, uh, what, what is, what is that, uh, header that he's using? Like metaphor FF, what does that mean? Well, <laughs> unless I describe that painstakingly, which I don't want to do, cause I don't want to dispel any ongoing mystery in the book. Why would I, um, <laughs> you know, I think that would just kind of take away some of those aspects. Uh, that are, you know, that allow the reader to, um, you know, enter and exit as they like and to make up their own ideas about what the book is or what it means. Hmm. Trying to, trying to be like, I think this book is maybe the first book I've ever done that is somewhat beyond criticism. Right? <laughs> like, like how, do, like, I, I remember talking to, I think it was maybe Cameron or my friend Jeff Blackman. And I was saying like, again, and please trust that I'm not, thinking that this would be an award-worthy book but like could this be like is this a book that you can even can be even nominated for an award why not like well i don't i don't know like it because there's i i i've never seen any book close to what this is like the poems were not written to be included in a book the poems are written to be <laughs> shared and given away but now they're in a book so like I, I don't know. It, it's, I guess maybe I haven't thought enough about it. Um, I do hope it wins an award though. Of course. <laughs> Is there an award for a typewriter books? Oh, I guess Danny Spinoza would win. If that <laughs> We're interviewing Danny or I'm interviewing Danny next uh, actually on the podcast. So we'll ask. Well, please, please tell Danny that uh, I loved her civilization book and I loved the typewriter poems book. Please tell her. Okay. For me, I, I, we were hoping to do a joint reading with her. Cameron was going to set up. Yeah. I think we were going to look at setting something up at Knife Fork Book oh, in Toronto with Danny and Kate Sikloski. Sikloski. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, right. Sorry. Yeah, her partner. Who they have that lovely interview at the end of the book, uh, the typewriter poems book. Her, her um, co-editor. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I would have loved to do a reading with them and to pick Danny's brain uh, about about like the question you asked earlier, Aaron, about you know the materiality, uh, the body, you know how the body refers or uh, how it relates to the process of writing on a typewriter, like and all of all of what and the question you asked, Amanda, like uh, what have you learned from the typewriter? I'd love to have that conversation with Danny. Well, I'd maybe, um, I'd maybe it'll happen another time uh, when you know. In sometime in the twenty second century, when the pandemic is over, you know something like that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, getting back to the, uh, the idea of uh, perfection again, just uh, like I mean, it's something that always inhibited me about poetry is this idea of someone writing in some ivory tower and every word was perfect. You know, I never, I never um, could write like that. So I. Um, so the thing about the the work uh, here in in the book in from the show, uh, the poems are quick and raw. They have typos and things crossed out, and a lot end abruptly. So the last poem in the book is 498. Three poems left. 
it says keyboards became a fuck you to the backspace. I love that. Uh, do you normally prefer poems like this? I don't know what normal is, but anyway, what's your editing process like away from the keyboards project? Away from the keyboards project is, is entirely different than that process. Um, <laughs> and I think, and that's actually maybe something I should have said earlier is that I, I, I think writers do themselves a favor when they attempt to capture poetry in different ways. Mm -hmm. So whether that's, um, like I've been talking to a lot of people uh, about that during the pandemic, you know, how's your writing? Um, you know, what are you doing? Well, I, I realized that the writing very quickly in the first month or so of the pandemic wasn't coming to me. So I started doing fridge magnet poetry. I started doing redaction poetry. I started doing um, anything and everything that was poetry adjacent mm -hmm. to, to ideally keep the kind of poetics sharp for when something else would come up that I wanted to write. Um, my process outside of keyboards is extremely like mythically slow. Like you can ask Cameron and Nancy about this, even though I publish a lot, but it's because I'm always working in different modes. Yeah. So the keyboards book comes out. Well, a couple months before that, I had written a, a short chat book for Birdberry Press called Kill Your Way North. Um, and then, you know, two or three months after that, I just put out this chapbook of uh, 25 copies only um, and sent them out to friends and whatnot. Um, that was kind of indicative of the last, I would say, uh, two weeks to five years of, of recent work. Um, so again, those are like, they were all three very different projects that I was able to have ongoing at the same time. Because they're and they all require different inroads into the process, which is why I think I was able to do them all at the same time. Yeah. Um, and I always have, I've always had a, a guzzle manuscript. Mm -hmm. um, I've had it ongoing. Oh my God, it's been like 15 years. Yeah. Um, but that's where I go, I go to play. You know, it's my sandbox. I go and play in there and, and take some lines out and add new lines as, as I see fit. Um, but again, that's something I can always be doing, right. regardless of if I'm working on something chatbook or if I'm working on something, uh, you know, like key, a keyboards project, live writing project. I think it's important to have these kind of different tendrils out in the poetry world instead of just focusing on, like, oh, well, fuck, everything I do has to be included in this manuscript that is already unwieldy. Oh, but if but I'm so happy with this poem, well, then I have to put it in this book, even though it doesn't fit. Or what if it doesn't fit? Then I just scrap it like, ugh. Like, <laughs> just just don't write for the goddamn book. Just, just write. But the more you have these tendrils out in the world, the less that becomes an issue. The more of these projects that you have that are ongoing, the less you feel like you have to cram everything into the bread box. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so you're having all these projects that are ongoing at the same, like at the same time, you can work in different modes. Would you find, do you find that uh, when you're working on other projects, you know, are you a perfectionist about any of it? Or I guess it depends on the project where you might be more about, you know, going over the same line 50 times. Or you, like you said before, you're, you kind of go off the, you know, fly off the cuff sometimes in the way you write and speak. Yeah. I, and, and again, like to reference this little chat book that I just sent out, like 
there were some poems in there, even though I'd been working on them for four years, that I, I re-edited a line two days before it was published and then put it out. Hmm. And I think maybe that that goes um, with what um, one of you asked earlier about um, in terms of what keyboards has taught you, um, in terms of how it carries forward in your writing. Maybe that's it. Like maybe maybe I do appreciate a bit more, a bit of an invention, um, on the spot invention that makes sense and is a bit more playful. Maybe it adds some playfulness to what should be finished, you know, on high ivory tower work, as you were saying, Amanda. Yeah. Um, maybe it, it, it brings to bear the idea that like not everything has to be this, this poem that's gonna, that is, you know, New Yorker material mm -hmm. or walrus material, like, I also think that comes from influences like Matthew Rohrer, who is who is constantly playful, mm -hmm. um, but it, but through being playful is actually able to um, bring forward some unbelievably deep work. Um, so yeah, like uh, I was trying to explain this the other day to someone that when you and as you both know. When you've been writing for like you know 10 15 20 years um all of all of the influences and all of the lines that like that, that you've heard that just like struck a chord with you all of that stuff kind of ends up in one big ball that you can kind of reference every yeah. now and then but it's hard to acknowledge the entirety of it in a conversation like this you yeah. know what i mean because the things that you want to be able to express are kind of more intuitive now because you've been doing it for so goddamn long. Mm. So then you have to kind of, uh, you, ha you have to make these analogies in terms of what your thinking is that you can express to somebody who maybe isn't there. Like I was talking to a young poet who's 21 the other day and trying to express these things to him after 15 years of experience is almost impossible. So you make up some analogy, some anecdotal reference that he can understand, you know, like a like I use like the for, like the idea of a cab ride, like some some words can be a cab ride to other words, like a vehicle to get to the end. Every line can be a last line. Some lines need to be a cab ride to the last line. And then you know, and it's a bad whatever. It's a whatever analogy, but it, he made sense of it. He was able to realize what I meant. And for me, it means something else. It means something strange and and quirky and and changing and dynamic and intuitive um okay now i'm just now i'm just going off <laughs> <laughs> as i tend to do i've already said it this is so this i won't feel bad about it anymore i'm stop i'm gonna stop feeling bad about it these are i think the we're the we could rename this podcast the digression poetry podcast certainly <laughs> 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 not just you <laughs> thank you Aaron. And if uh, the episode is a, a two-hour episode, you know, well, so what? It's okay. <laughs> right. Um, so another another kind of uh, editing-ish question. Uh, in your typewriter talk at the back of the book, there's a, a lovely note, number 12, about the capital X's you use to make your mistakes more prominent. You say each X is an admission of guilt, but also, hopefully, the visible retooling or rethinking of an idea that is too simple, cliche, or just plain uninteresting. The word processor acknowledges and displays so little of your writing labor. It's a lie that the typewriter you learn from. Let the, it's a lie that the typewriter lets you learn from. 
Cornelia Funk also always writes her novels first by hand. At the Ottawa International Writers Festival, she said something about how the process of writing made the work more real to her while working on a word processor gave her the impression that the work was already done and didn't require editing. So all that preamble to get to the question, do you think that in some ways terminology, sorry, not <laughs> do you think that in some ways technology has negatively influenced the act of writing? Yes, I do. Um, and, 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 and not, but not in a blanket way. Like, I don't want to be, I don't want to come across as some Luddite who's like, you know, everything has to be written in pencil or else it's not real. Or, you know, everything has to be scrawled in a notebook under duress or else it's not real uh, or it's not worth my time. Um, I do think, um, just as a, as a general observation, that as society moves forward and we ditch uh, certain technologies for others that of course there are things being lost like there there was nothing wrong there, there's nothing wrong with an with an analog uh you know camera there's nothing wrong with a 35 millimeter camera um can the digital camera do everything the 35 millimeter camera could do yes but is but the control that you have over it is less intuitive and is more uh by design just done for you so so it, to use that example, the more we move forward in camera technology, um, eventually, which I mean, we're already at that point, you don't need to worry about your light aperture. You don't need to worry about, uh, I, I wish I knew more about cameras now that I started this analogy. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what I mean? You don't need to know all the, all the bells and whistles yeah. of the camera because you can honestly just click point and shoot pro or whatever, and it right. will just take 10 shots for any one shot that you would have taken on an old 35 mil. Um, so is that better? Like, I would say no, because um, I, I would say, like, it, it precludes the idea of actually getting to intimately know the machine that you're working with. So with a yeah. typewriter, like, yeah, again, having to rewind the spool almost feels like nurturing. Right. Um, which is something that is just you're not able to do on a computer like and i always bring this up like i don't and and i'm sure one of you will shut me down now that i brought this up i don't know anybody who has like a romantic attachment to their laptop or computer <laughs> yeah, <no. laughs> right whereas typewriters like that's yeah. my baby like the one cameron gave me is my baby and i dropped my baby <laughs> oh, no. at an event and now now it doesn't work as well but it still works and i will continue to use it uh, if i drop my laptop and it ceases to work that's a much bigger problem more expensive it's in a more expensive problem um but there, but there isn't weirdly there isn't as much loss like there's a financial loss yeah. but it's not like oh it's like oh no everything that it contained is gone not it's gone yeah. Yeah, it's, so like it's, my 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 laptop or my my typewriters and all the ones that I've used along the way and keyboards. Some have been more frustrating than others, but there's personality there. Yeah, which is why I sent like Cameron didn't ask me for that page, which I'm assuming we'll talk about. But the page near the end of the book that shows all the different text of the different typewriters. Yeah, he didn't was, ask me for that. I provided that to him because it was like, here are my children, and here's how they sound. <laughs> Yeah, you know what yeah, I mean? You got, uh, there's a certain connection that we have to these instruments we're using when there's a lot more 
um, manual, you know, interaction with them. Um, my, my buddy who's a photographer talks about this sometimes and he feels that there's the, yeah, like the ease in which people can take photos now and the, how much like, you know, the AI technology essentially like facilitates this, it, it takes away some of the finer elements of the craft. On the flip side, you could argue though, that it also makes it more accessible for people. So more people are able, now he says it's, it's nice that everyone's a photographer because he loves photography, but also it's annoying that everyone's a photographer because it's harder and harder to tell the difference between, you know, uh, a, a, a picture that I would just take with my phone and a picture that he would take with like, you know, a very nice camera that he was putting all this effort into. And I'm wondering too, with like the average, for the average person, you know, um, now that everyone has access to like word processors and computers, if that's the same sort of, um, same sort of thing. Yeah, I think, I think it is like, I think I, I actually followed the ideal route in terms of, um, discovering a love for a machine, like a typewriter in the sense that I was still like, I'm 36. I still, and my family was, was fairly poor when we were just growing up. So like there was a while there where I remember typing out stories or or the odd essay on a typewriter um, and having to submit that because we didn't have a computer and a printer. So, but I didn't have a love for the typewriter then because it was just a means of getting my schoolwork done. Again, it was it was a means of production. It wasn't a means of um, of leisure or of uh, hobby even or of of creating professional work. Um, but, and then I, of course, I, like most people my age, I, I started using a computer. But then when I came back to the typewriter, um, you know, for keyboards specifically for the events, I, I had a, an appreciation for it already that had started when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understood the history of it. Like, like there was something that would happen very frequently at keyboards is if, if, if somebody would come in who is of a certain vintage, you know, somebody comes in who's 50 or 60, let's say, they walk right up to me and they ask me about my typewriter. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they, and they of course want to tell me, oh my God, I wrote my MA and my entire MA thesis on one of these things. (laughs) Um, So again, but they look at, they, it's like when you, when you're walking down the street and you see somebody walking a dog and they don't say hello to you. They say hello to the dog. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> they wouldn't even want to really talk to me. They'd want to talk to me through the typewriter. Oh my God, look at this thing. They're looking at the typewriter. Oh my God, it's so nice. Like, oh, I remember when I used to do it. Like, it's like I wasn't even there. <laughs> so again, that doesn't happen when you're in a coffee shop talking or writing, you know, your poetry on a laptop. Nobody's going to walk up and be like, wow, I remember a Mac computer when I was, you know, like that just doesn't happen. These things prompt a certain remembrance. You remember them like people, mm-hmm. not like machines. And it's because they are just as involved in the act of production as you are. And if it stops, like at the odd keyboards event, uh, the typewriter would break down. And when the typewriter breaks down, that's the end of the show. Right. That happened more than once. <laughs> so, and there's one poem that made it into the collection about my good friend, Nick Colhane, or, or we used to be very good friends, Nick Colhane. Um, the the type the typewriter conked out while I was writing the poem, so I had to write the rest of it by hand. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm glad that made it into the book because again, it's just one more weird little 
to use the word tendril again, it's one weird little tendril of the book that keeps it uh, dynamic despite it being set, you know, onto stone, as it were, despite being put into a book. Right. The, the question, well, the one that's not scratched out, but the one after that, we already kind of covered about the, the, the difference. Yeah. Between. So I think we'll, maybe we'll move on to this next one, which is about music. So um, many of the poems have a song reference or are the songs with new words by you? Like a pair, is, this, is that based on what's playing at the time? Are you reading your poems aloud while music is going on? So like I remember with the atmosphere of the avant-garde during Inward's open mics, uh, so, you know, sometimes the people were talking a lot in the background. It was kind of good. Maybe it was good training for, for the keyboards performances, too. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, the music, the music that is referenced in the book, in the poems in the book, are certainly what was playing in the bar at the time. So I would get, and depending on who the bartender was that night, um, I wouldn't know what music is playing. but while I'm sitting, you know, on the on the stage typing away, they would play music yeah. to keep, you know, everybody, uh, you know, interested, I guess, um, or, you know, just to get the conversation going again. Um, because I think, I think if we had, a, if, if the bartenders had, a, which I'm assuming happened a few times where they just didn't play anything, forgot to turn the music up, back up or whatever, but they would turn it down for me to read. And then when I go back and sit down to write again, they would turn the music back up. Um, but if they hadn't done that, I think there would have, it would have changed the environment in the room. All of a sudden everybody would have realized like, Oh, he can now hear everything we're all saying. <laughs> and now any and all of this is fair game. Whereas like on some nights, if, if the bar happened to be full, which didn't happen so often, like standing, I mean, like everybody's standing, there's 40 people in the room. Um, it would actually be much, much harder to hear anything. And those would probably be moments where I would, I would go off on my own and try to think of something that I couldn't hear in the bar. But I mean, they, they reminded me of, uh, of Glenn Gould's, uh, the introduction to his old radio show, uh, Idea of North where it's just this kind of like human symphony where it's just like people talking um, and then layered over each other to the point where it reached this kind of cacophony. That, that was one of my favorite moments in keyboards where I'd have to kind of look up at the ceiling and try to pick out one or two lines uh, that's being spoken in the room that I could use because it was, it was difficult to do. Um, anyhow, I've gone off again. Uh, so the next, we have a couple more questions that have been, I feel like we've touched on them. So I'm going to skip ahead, Amanda. And if you, there was something that you wanted to touch on in the next two, like just feel free to obviously go back right. after this. But uh, I was going to also no, say, guys, I've, I've got a few poems uh, if you bookmarked read. if you want me to read anything. I just thought I, I should have said that before, but right. anyway. Well, how about we, we can do that uh, as we're wrapping up then. How about that? That can be a nice sort of. Yeah. Uh, last selling point for the book. If anyone is out there uh, still confused if they want to buy it or not, maybe if they hear you reading at the end, it'll be what's uh, really uh, takes it home for them. Right. Uh, so yeah, I think just a couple questions left. Um, so I know you've been Ottawa, Peterborough, I'll leave you in Vancouver for a little while as well at one point. Yes. 
So can you compare and contrast maybe just like the experiences of being a poet and the literary scenes in the different cities that you've lived in, if anything sticks out or is different amongst them? Ottawa, I mean, Ottawa is where I started out and Ottawa is where I met all of basically, well, most of my poetry people, uh, like Amanda, uh, like yourself, Aaron, like, um, but, you know, folks more specifically that I, that I came came up with at Carlton, like Cameron Anstey, uh, Jeff Blackman, um, folks like that. Um, and I, yeah, I started the Inwards Reading Series at the Clock Tower Pub, which I think is still going. Is that still going? No. <laughs> uh, Inwards, wow. like, it, it was going at the Clock Tower, then it got moved to um, the Art House Cafe, which is a, a newer place for you on Somerset, but then it kind of just seemed to fizzle out and nothing's happened since like uh, maybe last year, or the year before, I can't remember exactly. So there hasn't right. been inwards reading for a long time now. Right. Well, the Ottawa scene is, is very vast, but also like very insular. Uh, I don't mean insular in the negative sense exactly. I mean it more like everybody knows who everyone is close <laughs> um, and and for the most part everyone is very kind and generous and um you know and collaborative um but um peterborough is <laughs> peterborough is very different i mean ottawa's a bigger city of course mm -hmm. Um, but in Peterborough, when I moved back, there was almost nothing happening in terms of, as I said earlier, there was almost nothing. Well, I would say actually there was nothing happening <laughs> in terms of a, an organized page poetry scene. Um, and, but as I said before on actually on a, on a podcast or on a radio show I did a long time ago with one J.M. Frosteau. Uh, literary landscapes of which I used to be the host back in the day. That's right. Um, he asked me, yeah, what's it like in Peterborough? And I said, well, the beauty about Peterborough is you can do anything here. Like if you have a weird idea for some literary thing, or I mean any artistic thing, but a weird literary thing, you won't get the funding, uh, but, but you'll get a venue for free. You'll get, um, you know, you'll get the backing of the venue for free and their marketing and whatever. Um, it's very different in terms of that you can just approach uh, almost anyone downtown. Art only happens in downtown Peterborough. It doesn't really happen outside of it. Um, and, but yeah, if you, if you have a project, you can just kind of make it happen. Whereas Ottawa, I found was a bit harder to do that. Uh, like, and I know from a bit of experience, obviously that's probably changed, but I remember when I was trying to set up, uh, when I was trying to move the Inwards Reading Series out of the Legion, uh, which I think was on, what, Montgomery and something? Uh, Kent. Uh, Kent, sorry, yes. It's the Montgomery Legion, I believe. Yeah. Right. I was trying to move it out of there into a better location. <laughs> uh, I, I called the Clock Tower Pub and I asked for John, who I knew was the manager at the time, and because that was kind of my local pub, and I asked for the manager and I said, I'm, I want to do a poetry reading. I know you have this basement that you rent out, um, and how much is that? And he said, well, it's $750 a night. Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> and I just laughed uh, because, you know, for a poetry endeavor, that's no, absurd. And, but, you know, he said, so you just really, you just need the space and a bartender. And I said, yes. And he said, you know what, we'll do it. So I didn't, I didn't have to pay him anything. They set us up with a bartender, but again, that just came from asking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like if you can't get a literary thing you want to do done, then it's your fault. <laughs> like it, honestly, because like if you're not, you're just not approaching the right person. And I'm sure we've all like Amanda, like I'm sure you can, you can, you can chime in on this. Like, <laughs> Yes, it's probably like beating your head against the wall for a long time. But when you find that right space. Oh, yeah. No, they can be really generous and, and uh, for free and all that stuff. What I'd like to see more of is uh, more accessible venues once this is over and uh, people go back to spaces. Uh, we, we, that's essential to me to move out of the stairs environments. And, uh, Absolutely. And And again, I think in Ottawa, we were... It, it 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 almost had nothing to do with how encouraging or generous the actual writing scene was. It was more of a venue issue. It was more yeah. where are we going to perform issue, right. which was almost almost always ended up in basements or in the, <laughs> on the second floor. Well, right. Either the second floor or the basement. Yeah, frustrating. Um, whereas in Peterborough, there aren't really many working basements and second floors <laughs> because they're all vacant. Uh, due to various, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, poverty and and uh, whatever. That's neither here nor there. That's a whole other podcast. But yeah, here it's it's very painfully easy to get something organized. Uh, so whenever people, I I just refuse to listen when people talk to me about how hard it is to set up their thing. It's not. You just have to be willing to talk to more than two people. There you go. <laughs> I, I think maybe uh, we should probably just move on to the notes so you get a chance to read some poems, too. I think that would be good. What do you think, Aaron? Shall we do that? Yeah, sure. That's fine with me. All right, good. So uh, I like to, uh, usually at the towards the end of the podcast, I like to um, just talk a little bit about what I loved about the work and stuff. So it's always always makes the poet blush, but here you go. Uh, these <laughs> poems are the kinds of poems that I'd like to sit with alone in a bar while I nurse a Guinness that leads to another. I love the bodiness of wish, the tenderness of banana medicine, the wit and self-deprecation of Crywolf, the song parodies, the fuck you attitude but not, the X's that show all the mistakes. The poems show vulnerability, anxiety, tenderness, a love of, but also a worry about impermanence. They are humorous, philosophical, witty, and offer a portrait of a time that we may not return to anytime soon. Strangers and friends sitting together in a bar, knocking back a few pints while listening to or not listening to some poet. So that's, that's what I <laughs> Yes. So I wrote, um, I wrote two, but they weren't intended to be to be read, but I do like to sometimes go through and just mention a few lines that I really like stuck with me. Um, sure. Yeah, so I liked, uh, where we got here? Uh, poem number 235, there are far too many chords to be the future. <laughs> the trick to I a poem. On, I could go on about that, but I won't. <laughs> and poem number 296, the trick to a poem or to poetry is there are no secrets, which is why I have so few friends. <laughs> uh, and uh, poem 437, who has the ambition to afford a dentist? 
Ah, yes. <laughs> yes, that, those, those all spoke to me. <laughs> that's, that's one of my, I think I actually have that one bookmarked uh, to read. That That's, uh, well, do you mind if I read it? Yeah, yeah. go ahead. Uh, read, I I want to read a couple, and if you wanted suggestions, I have a, I have suggestions, and if you have one you want to read, go right ahead and read them. Well, if you don't mind, guys, I I, I would I'll read this one just because it's a it's a funny story as well. I I came to do keyboards as per usual, eight o'clock, uh, so I showed up at seven thirty or whatever to set up on the last Sunday of that month, and my my good friend Sean Conway was there, and he at the time he was running for the local NDP spot. And uh, and he had brought in uh, a bunch of his Dipper friends, the NDP, the NDPers, the, the Peterborough NDP uh, hopefuls, uh, to sit in on the Ontario uh, debate, the the provincial election debate. And uh, so I was kind of pissed off because I was like, well, this is my time. Like they had a TV on the stage, so I couldn't sit up. And and so Sean, Sean, I think realized that and was like, well, why don't you write? I'm hoping you'll write us a poem and then you'll read it <laughs> when the debate's over. But I'm thinking like, well, shit, the debate's over in like half an hour. Like now he's put me on the spot in front of this group of people. Now I have to write something. So Alicia was there with me and we went and sat in the back patio and there's a window that separates the back patio from the stage. So I could hear the TV and I could hear the debate. So I could hear the debate language. And and as you both know, debate language is just so interesting. It's <laughs> it's just it's absurd. They they answer questions without an answer. It's it's kind of amazing. So I thought <laughs> I was kind of right. And it's still happening, yeah. of course, even worse than it was ever happening before. It's still happening to this day. Um, oh, so I thought I would think of public service, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So I thought I would write about about that language that they use in a debate, which is saying almost nothing while attempting to say something. Um, so this poem is, yeah, keyboards number 437. It's called Debate. <laughs> Believe in the taxpayer's pocket. Emphasize questions about redundancies. The Constitution is a tool, like commercial breaks. There is no way to resolve Hitler. Cuts in the reduction industry. The people of Ontario deserve deservers. The economy is cutting microscopes. Fairness is about leadership, which is about applause, which is about two hands coming together. Who has the ambition to afford a dentist? Harsh words are the new family budget for families, Ontario families. Ontario families need megaphones. Average Canadians want the drain to circle left. Conservatives believe in the Ottoman Empire, backs for their feet. Finding balance is a practical solution for being tackled. An educated workforce moves away. The first question from the audience is an answer responded to via more fucking questions. Empty my opinion into the census that's Liza's bucket. Incorporate business into my change jar. Thank you, Steve. I'd like to begin my answer by being interrupted. 
Ontarians work very hard, but we need more rights and freedoms for our inanimate friends. Support broad strokes. Support for the memory of George W. Bush choking on a pretzel. Support proper Twitters. Physicists proven wrong as June 7th is primed to last four years. Flooded roads and choked bridges promised drivers rainbows. The fence is buckling. 2,000 spaces devoted to swinging cats by the tail. Not this year, not next, but the next one after that will be going back to the future. People shouldn't be unable to care for bees. Audience, audience, calm down, please. Let's let the opinion have its say. This next segment involves ignoring art. This next segment involves ignoring art. This next segment involves making sure real Canadians are real. This next segment is a vulnerable senior who treasure, treasures hip shots. Take your loved ones, for instance, report them. First say, okay, Google. Divide two-thirds by two-thirds. Talk to people. If they're stuck in a hospital hallway, it's easier. Mental health is an area. My friends, ask your childhood heroes, who would they support? I have it on good authority. The Thundercats are voting NDP. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Do you want to read any more or, or any more points? Are you? Uh, well, it's up to you, up, up to you guys. I have, I have what, two or three more that I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't bookmark too many. I, I, I knew we wouldn't really have time for that, but. Sure. A couple guys. more. If you have a, yeah, whatever you want. I know that we talked about the Peterborough slogans a lot. I'm not sure if people are interested in that or whatever other ones that you uh, have. Yeah, the, yeah. I, would, I would like to read a Peterborough slogans poem because it is, it is the one poem or the one kind of theme that keyboards yeah, right. had. And, and there is a bit of a story attached to it as well where uh, the story goes that the city of Peterborough paid an advertising uh, you know, marketing company, marketing firm in Peterborough, $77,000 to come up with a new slogan for the city and literature in, that, would, uh, that would tell the city how best to market itself given that slogan. And okay. they came up with a new logo. Uh, they came up with a new logo, which is just awful. Like two, two different fonts in the same word. Like Peter has a different font than Burrow, <laughs> which just uh, just bothers me to no end. But so seventy-seven thousand dollars, and the and the slogan they came up with is outside the ordinary. <laughs> <laughs> so a quick Google search led me to find that that's already in use, of course, because <laughs> like it's already been in use by three different companies at the time. So again, uh, this idea of like what what the fuck you paid seventy seven thousand dollars you have a, a city full of artists and like yeah. peterborough punches peterborough punches way above its weight in terms of the artists that we actually have here um in terms of population like per capita there's there's one artist for every 0.5 citizens you know <laughs> like, like there's there's so many artists here so you decided to pay this marketing firm to come up with outside the ordinary so that's when, out of kind of protest, I started these Peterborough slogans, uh, you know, as, as a means of, of providing uh, alternatives to uh, Peterborough outside the ordinary. 
<laughs> so most folks who came to the to the keyboards uh, events know this know this series and i would actually get like i got commissioned to write a few of them outside of keyboards oh wow um, and also i would get this is the one thing i would get asked to do right. every keyboard session after a while um but the problem is is that they took a long time to write because they're they're a, a full page or more mm -hmm. um so anyhow this is this is keyboards poem number 347 Peterborough Slogans, Volume 6. Oh, and poor Cameron Anstey. There must be, uh, like, Peterborough Slogans, there's probably 20 of them, but I've only ever numbered them up to 14. I'm <laughs> sure there's, like, five number 14s or, or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. So, Peterborough Slogans, Volume 6. Peterborough, where the slow heat death of the universe meets the slow heat death of the universe. Peterborough, where infrastructure and promised meet I don't, see i don't know why i wrote that because that's actually positive <laughs> which doesn't, doesn't it doesn't fit with my mo but anyway you get also the idea of how i'm performing these i would always kind of give a grand wave of my hand when i said peterborough and i'd always yell it and then they would always kind of filter into the next and not really give the audience much time to react unless they were laughing uh anyway peterborough live outside the ordinary places to find work Peterborough, live outside the ordinary expectation of wearing a shirt. Peterborough, live outside the ordinary rooming houses. Peterborough, don't let the crippling anxiety and social inequality hit you on the way out. Peterborough, where Hallmark cards cost $77,000. Peterborough, where the new library accepts your methadone card. Peterborough, we miss subway stamps. Peterborough, where most folks' idea of poetry involves really listening to April wine. Peterborough, <laughs> probably owes you money. Peterborough, where radio station catalogs meet the public domain. Or April wine. Peterborough, where guns carry police officers. <laughs> Peterborough, yeah, that's a little too relevant. Peterborough. We were all, at some point, telemarketers. Peterborough, kitchen experience required. Peterborough, will join Toronto for food. Peterborough, GE would make a killer paintball grounds. Peterborough, where the bars meet bars. Peterborough, there's no place like anywhere else. Peterborough, calls cocaine booger sugar. Peterborough, the pubic hair in the mouth of the province. <laughs> I think at one I, like point, I noticed that was the first uh, one in the number six was the first one in the book, meaning the first five would have all gotten taken by patrons. And I think there's only like what one other one in there, but yeah, those those would get taken away. And again, there's no there's no telling the rhyme or reason why, like unless I had recorded it at the time, why one poem would have been taken when another one wouldn't but also some nights i didn't express to a room full of strangers for instance that they, that they could take one. Oh, right uh, so sometimes they just didn't know right anyhow i think at one point uh, ottawa's uh, uh slogan was uh, <clears throat> ottawa is technically beautiful so <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's right yeah Technically, <laughs> yeah, <that's, laughs> yeah, I guess. 
Yeah. Is there anything else you, you'd like to add, uh, Justin, or you, Aaron? Sorry, my voice is going now. <clears throat> Um, I, I guess all I'd like to add is that, yeah, I mean, if you're listening to this in Peterborough, um, thank you, first of all, but also, uh, I still have, I still have copies of, of Ejecta if you, excuse me, if you don't want to order, um, but if you do want to order, please check out, uh, Apartment 9 Press, uh, and their Etsy page, and Cameron, my good friend Cameron will make sure that it gets sent out to you, uh, as as quickly as possible um and i hope to be able to to um to do of course to do launches or readings uh when that's allowed i did do a uh a kind of facebook live uh launch for the book um that uh, to all indication went well but i mean um I, I i'm just more worried about i want cameron to sell his books yeah uh, you know uh, and and i know that given that they can't really be in bookstores right now and we can't do launches um it's probably a lot harder to be selling books right now um so yeah please please uh, if you are interested then please either reach out to me or and I'm sure Amanda, if you feel more comfortable reaching out to Amanda or Aaron, they can point you in the right direction as well. Put the link up to that to Apartment Nine Press as well on the on the site as well. So. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you. And Aaron, I mean, and other, than, other than that, no, I don't think I have anything anything else. Well, I, I could go on, and as you know, I could go on and on and on. Aaron, <laughs> and you have anything? <clears throat> oh, just uh, yeah. Thanks. This is an interesting. I mean, we've talked about it a lot. It's an interesting book. It's a it's a beautiful book, um, and um, yeah, it was good. It was good chatting and uh, good to think about these sorts of things and and chat about them with you. So thanks for thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Amanda. I appreciate it. Thanks to our guests, Justin Million, to A.M. Kozak for co-hosting, to Charles for processing, to Jennifer Peterson for the intro and outro, to all of you for listening and sharing the episode. Stay tuned for the next episode, an interview with Danny Spinoza, author of OO Typewriter Poems, at the end of the month or beginning of the next when, when we uh, get to that. Thanks, everybody. Small Machine Talks with Amanda Earle and A.M. Kozak.